repentance. In Luke 13, some people told Jesus about an incident involving Galileans. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So apparently this was an event that has happened previous, but it's actually not an event that is recorded in the New Testament or even in secular history. So we have to look closely to see what Jesus is talking about. Now he said that Pilate mixed the Galileans blood with their animal sacrifices. So apparently we have this incident where Galileans were visiting Jerusalem and they were making sacrifices on the Temple Mount. But Pilate decided to kill the Galileans so that their blood was now mixed with the sacrificial animal's blood. This actually does sound like something Pilate would do. We have recorded several other stories where Pilate was actually very violent. Right before Jesus' ministry, we have an incident where Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct from the pools of Solomon to the city of Jerusalem. In order to pay for it, he wanted to overtax the Jews. So when the Jews sent delegates begging to lower the taxes, Pilate actually sent in soldiers dressed as regular people, and then they pulled out daggers and they killed several unsuspecting Jews. Now this is not the same story that is referenced here in Luke 13, but it does show the character and nature of Pilate. He was a really violent ruler. Now Jesus responds to hearing about the massacre of the Galileans with a warning. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So instead of conjecturing on the Galileans' sin, Jesus says, Take care of your own sin. In other words, everyone needs to repent. So there you go. A little bit about the massacre of Galileans. And that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us open with prayer tonight. God, we love you so much and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the way he continues to pursue us with his love, for the way he continues to pour out his love upon us, for the way he gives us strength and encouragement and, and just a hope to keep going forward for the way he reminds us again and again that because of his resurrection on Easter Sunday that we are forgiven, which gives us a strength to leave our past in the past, that gives us a strength to forgive those who have hurt us in this life, that gives us a strength to experience the freedom that he has for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love, and we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, I was going to pray for moms, but I didn't want to follow the slaughter with that. So we'll pray that at the end, actually. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we're in Luke 12, if you've been following along. And actually, we're in Luke 12, beginning with verse 35 today. And it's an interesting part in Luke. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's just shared this in verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he goes on with some discourses that are given to his disciples, but also to us in a very real way tonight. And so he kind of shares this whole section about being ready, being ready for his return, being ready for his, his presence in our life, all those different things. And so he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may, be opened, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Now, it's kind of a confusing thing, but I'll just share this. The master is Jesus, and he's going to come again at the wedding feast, which is when he comes again to restore all things, to judge the living and the dead, all those different things. And we are the servants, and so I'm going to read it again in that context. 
Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master Jesus to come home from the wedding feast, to come again, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom Jesus finds awake when he comes. One of the things that God asks us to do over and over is to be ready for his return, to be seeking him with our lives. And, and not just so that he's reverenced and, and, and held in, in glory and all those different things, but so that we might find that forgiveness and that strength and that hope and that peace that I just talked about in the prayer. He wants to be first in our life. He wants to have a relationship with us in this life. He wants to give us the good stuff, which is what the morning series is all about. He wants to remind us that he's got us and that we're his, and he wants us to be seeking him all the days of our life. When he comes again, it's like, you know, you're taking this test in school and all of a sudden the teacher says, pencils down, you know, and you can't write anything more because then you're going to fail. So you put the pencils down. God says, blessed are those that are ready for me. Blessed are those that are looking for me when I return. They don't have to be caught up on stuff. You know, do you ever talk to people and they say, yeah, I might come back to the church, but I'm just not ready. I got some living to do. But you know, when I get older, I'll come back to the church and, and everything will be fine. I'll repent and we'll all be good. The only problem is we don't know when it's going to be time. We don't know when the Lord's going to call us home. We don't know when he's going to come again. And so he calls us to be ready over and over and over again. And this whole section is really about that. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. For truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. It's kind of a curious little sentence there. I don't know if it's up on the board, but one of the things he says is that the God of all ages, right? The God who created you, the God who sent his son Jesus will actually let you recline at his table and serve you. His servants. He'll flip the roles. You know, there's all kinds of blessings that God talks about in Scripture. You know, the Beatitudes go on and on and on. His care for us, his love for us. And this is one of the unexplained ones. We don't even get it, but it's, it's a blessing far too great for us even to comprehend. And that the God of the universe loves us so much that at the end of times, he'll flip the roles, at least for a time, and serve those who he created to serve him. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. If there's a delay, a period of time, I don't know, 2,000 plus years, blessed are those that are still seeking him. Blessed are those who said he's important to him, that make him first in their life. Blessed are those who want to follow him. You look around our world today and it's not everybody, is it? There's a lot of people, if studies are right, saying that the, the millennial generation is walking, those that were in the church are walking away from the church. Almost seven out of ten are doing so today. That's why you don't see, it's not just our church, you don't see the young adults in, in a lot of churches today. And as such, they're not ready. Right? They may say they know God. They may say they believe in God. They may say all sorts of things, but talk is cheap. God says, be ready. I need you to be ready. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour, at what hour the thief was going to come, he would not let his house, left his house to be broken into. The master of this world is Satan, right? If Satan knew the exact hour of Jesus' return, he would buffet up every, not, not that it would be enough, but he would buffet up everything he could to try to prevent Jesus from coming. If he had known Jesus' plan to resurrect himself from the dead, he would have gone a different way. If Satan knew 
He would do everything he could to make sure Jesus wouldn't succeed. But Satan doesn't know when he's going to return. And we don't know when he's going to return. So you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you don't expect. And so I'll just share this. There's so many things happening in our world today where if Jesus wanted to come, he could come very quickly. I used to think for a long time there's so many things that would need to get set up, so many things that would need to transpire to even get close to do, doing the prophecies that he's already kind of prophesied about his end. But if God wants to come soon, everything's in place. If God wants to wait another 500 or 2,000 years, he can do that too. But the reality is we should be ready. We should be attentive to the things that are happening we should know that he's going to one day come and rid the earth of evil. You know, we talk about heaven being this perfect place. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more sin. A perfect place where he's got us, where we're his, where we have occupation of some sort, using the gifts that he's given us in this world, where there's different levels of, 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 of reward, I guess, for the things that we do on this earth, all sorts of things we don't clearly understand. But we know that that time is coming. And we know that he's going to set up a new earth, heaven and a new earth and kind of reset things in a place where he's king and we all love him and worship him. And we know that's coming. And it's going to be our reward, and it's going to be our prize, and it's the thing that we look forward to most of all. But it should just emphasize for us that when we come here and we worship Him, we're playing for keeps. We're playing for something that's eternal, not just temporal. We're not playing for the here and now. We're playing for our forever and ever and ever. He goes on, and Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable to all of us, or for all of us? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? So he's imagining that the owner of the house is gone, and he's put this wise manager in charge to take care of the rest of the service, to take care of all his property. I guess as a way of thinking about that is, you know, if we're believers in him, he's placed all of us in charge of something, Right? If you're a mom, if you're a dad, he's placed you in charge of your family, of your kids. To do what? To share with them the food at the proper time or God's truths, right? Helping them know him. And there's no greater gift that you can give to your kids than eternity, right? So you give your kids Jesus. And God keeps you accountable to what you've done. Have you shared with them what, the, what Jesus is? Have you shared with them the depths and the riches of his love for them? Have you done your job? Pastors, right? We're held to even a greater, you know, level of accountability. Are you teaching your people the truth? Are you teaching the people the word of God? Or are you making it up as you go along, as it seems so many are today? Are you giving them what they need to know Jesus? Are you giving them what they need to be in heaven? Are you dispensing the truths? Are you dispensing the gifts that I have in store for them? If God has given you friends, He's given you people, he's put people in your life specifically for you to witness to, to, for you to share with. When I was in high school, I had a friend named Al, and it was our senior year, and, and we had spent a lot of time together, but he died. He had a massive heart attack at just such a young age, and it was sad. And, and I knew, because we had hung out a lot, that he didn't know Jesus. And I had this big funeral at this church, and I just remember I couldn't go because they were going to say a bunch of things that I just knew weren't true of Al. And I was also dealing with a lot of guilt because I had said nothing, talked about nothing in regards to eternity and regards to Jesus. 
And I remember just vowing at that point, I'm not going to let another one of my friends die without me saying something, telling them about Jesus so that they can be in heaven one day. And probably that was pretty formative. I became a pastor, right? But I can testify to this day, I have not let one of my friends or close acquaintances go very far in our relationship without me telling them about Jesus, without me challenging about him. I have a buddy named Mike. I keep talking about him, but I love him so much and I want him to be in heaven, so I keep on trying. God has placed people in your life, and maybe they're buddies, maybe they're people you work with, maybe they're neighbors, but he's placed them in your lives so that you can shine as a witness to Jesus Christ because he wants them in heaven too. Are you being faithful, that wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give him their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find doing that when he comes. got a Maybe a question, I guess. Given the, the call to preparedness in the context of the passage, would not the master of the house guarding against the thieves be us? If we knew when Jesus would come, we would be ready, but since we don't know, uh, we should always be ready. Possibly, but, but the reality is, is that Satan would fight awful hard against us, right? And, and yes, if we knew when he was going to come, all of us might not come to church for a period of time and then just come at the end and say, hey, we're good. So it possibly, I'll, I'll just say that. I'll confess ignorance on that. Um, but he goes on, truly I say to you, he will set himself over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will, be on a day, will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. You know, I used to work at a grocery store when I was younger and when the boss was away, a lot of the employees didn't do what they were supposed to do. And when the boss was there, they always did what they were supposed to do. Anybody ever work at a job like that when they were younger or, or older or whatever it is, right? Why is it that when the boss is there, you act differently? Because you think you can get away with stuff. He's talking about a servant here that, ah, he's not come back anytime soon. I, I heard a, a story at a funeral yesterday. It was talking about um, the person that died. And, and when he was younger, he and his brothers, and he had a bunch of brothers, they, they unhooked a, the motor to the, to the washer and dryer, and they set it up to a go-kart or whatever, and they just you know, went around the, their yard, and they were having lots of fun. But they'd have a lookout on top of the hill in case mom and dad were coming home. And so that lookout would be up there, but one day the, the belt fell off, and they got in trouble anyway. But the reality of man is that we, is mankind is that we do stuff when we think we can get away with it. When it's in the darkness, that's when sin seems to thrive. It's when you start shining a light on stuff. If all of you had to come up and confess your sins over this last week, you would be horrified, right? But would it curb what you did next week? If you knew you had to come up and self-report this the, the week after, absolutely would curb it a little bit because all of a sudden, a light would be shined on what you were doing. And even if the whole congregation said, we love you, you're forgiven in Jesus' name, amen, and they know you completely, and yet they still gave you that forgiveness, you would still curb what you did because you don't want to come forward. You don't want the light exposed. So this servant thought he had some time, thought he could get away with some things. But what he didn't account for, his mom and dad coming home early, what he didn't account for is Jesus' return. And then when God comes again, when Jesus comes again and he finds the unfaithful servant, what does he do? He treats them as an unbeliever. 
almost worse. Actually, it is worse. In verse 47, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive severe beatings. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive light beatings. It's one of the few portions of Scripture that seems to talk about levels of punishment in hell. And again, just like the rewards in heaven, we don't know a whole lot about it, but it does indicate that if you knowingly despise the Lord, if you knowingly reject his call, somehow that makes your eternity even worse. Every one to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand much more. God has given each of us gifts that he wants us to use for his kingdom. If you can tell people and help people understand the word of God, he wants you to use that. If you can sing beautifully, he wants you to use that, as Rick does every single time that he gets up here, right? In the praise team as they play. If you have the ability to make people understand complex truths or, or help them just get to know Jesus, you should be doing that all the time. Administrative helps, all sorts of things the church could use, right? All sorts of things. But, but he wants you to use those gifts for his kingdom. And then he goes on to say this, I came to cast fire on the earth, and with that it already be kindled. Kind of a funny thing for God to say. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He says, I want to cast a fire on the earth, and my, my resurrection, or my death and resurrection is going to light a fire on the whole thing. It's the match. And that fire is going to go out, and what it's going to do, it's going to divide you think about God bringing peace, right? Peace and goodwill to all men. That's what we sing at Christmas, right? All that kind of stuff. And he does give us a peace, doesn't he? For those that hold to him, there's a peace that comes from knowing that he's got us. There's a peace that comes from knowing that we're forgiven and going to be with him in heaven. There's a peace that comes. But in our world, as you look around, is, is, uh, are people neutral to Christ in our world? No. They're either for him or against him, it seems. In fact, you can't stay neutral to the word of God for every time it goes out, you either receive it or you push it away, but you cannot remain neutral to it. You either zone out on purpose or you hear and you're forced to deal with things in a real way. Do I receive the correction? Do I receive the comfort? Do I receive the forgiveness? Or do I push it away and say, no, I can't hear this anymore? There's examples of that. People who pursue sin they send, tend to stop coming to church on a regular basis. They tend to stop reading the word as, as often. They tend to stop coming and asking pastor his advice because they don't want to hear that what it is that they're doing is wrong. They don't want to hear. You cannot remain neutral to God's word. And so when Jesus comes, he says, I'm setting into motion the end. I'm going to destroy the, the, the wicked from the world and I'm going to gather those that are mine to myself. I'm setting this thing into motion. I'm lighted on fire and those that are mine are going to find the peace and the forgiveness and the hope and those that aren't are going to be burned up in that unquenchable fire. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, or two against three, and they will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and her daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And that's going to challenge our faith in Jesus. Do we love him most? We already see that playing out in our world today. 
Some of us have kids that have rejected Jesus and don't want any part of the church. Some of us have siblings. Some of us have parents. We've already seen it in our own families. And rare is the family where everybody believes in Jesus and goes to church together. Praise be to God for that family. How cool must that be? Knowing that everybody you know in your family is going to be in heaven with you. Our world is already divided. And the challenge of this happening in our world is this. Who do I love most? Because when your child comes to you and says, I don't want any part of this, or I'm going to act in a a way that I know God doesn't approve of, do you love your kid more and exalt them and their issues or their sin more and say, okay, maybe God isn't so serious about it or maybe God's not so real or, or do you support God and say, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to continue to minister to my kids even in the midst of their bad decisions or their bad behavior. I'm going to continue to share with them about Jesus so that one day they find him again. There's way too many families that that straddle the line. There's way too many families to decide to embrace their kids first, or it's not their kids, their relationship first, or if not their relationship, their job or money or some other thing. God says, I want to be first. Do you love me most? And as the world walks further and further away from God, there's going to be more and more tension to say, I want you from the world to love me more than God. And God says, you just can't. He, was, he also said to the crowds, when you see a crowd rising in the west, and you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens, and when you see the south wind blowing, and you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens, which just makes sense. And when it came from the west, they were surrounded by desert, okay? When it came from the west, they knew, and the cloud rose up, they knew it was going to be rain because that's where the sea was. When it came from the other directions, right, where the desert was, they knew there was going to be a, a heat wave coming. But anyway, he goes on and says, You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? As you look at the present time, what had just happened? John the Baptist came and did what? He called everybody in Israel, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He's coming. The Messiah is coming. Hey, everybody pay attention. He was like this big billboard crying out to everybody. And everybody, it seemed, went and saw him or knew somebody that saw him, knew what his message was. Even the Pharisees went to see what he was saying. And then Jesus came. And it wasn't just John the Baptist and his message. It wasn't just the baptisms that he was doing and and, and, and just drawing people again to God in a real way. It was Jesus himself who came, the Messiah himself, who fulfilled all the prophecies, who did all sorts of miracles, and who taught like nobody had ever taught before. They had seen these guys come. They had seen the miracles. They had seen the difference that he made in people's life. They had seen demons come screeching out. They had seen people who couldn't see see. They had seen all sorts of things. But they didn't recognize that something big was happening. They didn't recognize that Jesus was the Messiah somehow. And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate to make every effort to, to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you into the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So he says some hard things to us. Now, I want you to think about this. The accuser is who? It's the evil one. How do we get rid of the evil one as our accuser? Through repentance and grace. 
John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus, repent for the kingdom of God is here or at hand. Peter, afterwards, repent for you just killed Jesus. Repent, repent, repent. God says, I will never despise a broken and contrite heart, a humble and contrite heart. At the funeral yesterday, I got a bunch of good stuff from there. But one of the guys that was giving a, a, a tribute, he said something about the brokenness. You know, and this, the brokenness is important because that's how the light gets in. When, we broke, break, when we're broken before God, when we're contrite before God, when we're sorry before God, that forgiveness and that love comes pouring in upon us and he wraps us up in his arms and he says, I still love you. It's gonna be okay. I forgive what you've done. And then he washes us off and he sends us back out to try to take on the world again with the promise that if you blow it again, I'm gonna still be here loving you and caring for you. Keep on going, I've got you. It's gonna be okay. We're gonna get to the other side. And he doesn't excuse sin and he doesn't encourage sin, but man, when we blow it and that's what repentance is, He's there every single time. It's Mother's Day. Mother's Day is a cool day. I'll tell you something about my mom. She is my biggest fan. She has been my biggest encourager forever. I can't blow it enough for her to turn her back on me, right? She will love me no matter what I do. She will encourage me no matter how bad I fail. She is one that just will constantly love, and she is one of God's greatest gifts to me. And really, if you have a mom like that, you celebrate today and don't let it go by without telling her Happy Mother's Day. It's a big deal. But God does even better than that, even more than that. He says, I will always love you. I'm an even bigger cheerleader than your mom. I will continue to be there for you. I will continue to forgive and wash you down and wipe you down and get you back out of there. I'll continue to give you strength to deal with life. I'll continue to remind you that I've got you, that I'm working all things for your good. I'm continuing to be with you until you get to be with me. Great is the love of our God. And so we get rid of that stuff that Satan would accuse us with when we repent to him and say, God, we're so sorry forgive us. God says, okay, because of Jesus, because of what he did. And that light pours down upon that brokenness and it heals again and again and again. But if we don't do that, if we stay in unrepentance and hardness of hearts, I tell you, you'll never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Sadly, our money doesn't work in hell or in heaven, so... You'll never get out. You'll have received your just reward. There was some present at the very time who told them about the Galileans uh, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And I thought that was interesting what Mike shared, and it was interesting. They don't really know exactly what the reference is, but it shows the character of Pilate, doesn't it? And doesn't it amaze you at how little he cared for human life, how he was so reticent with Jesus to condemn him to death? Like, why was that such a big deal for him? Except that he knew the Jews had nothing against him at all. Which again, knowing his character, why did that matter? Because it was such a gross misuse of power. Because it was so unjust in every possible way that even this hardened leader was saddened by what was going down. But anyway, he had done this horrible thing and Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you what? You repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Or those 18 of whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other, others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus again says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's another interesting thing, um, and it brings up several things that people will share today. People think, you know, well, first of all, there was a prevailing theology at this time that when bad things happened, it was a consequence of your sin. Remember Job? They all thought it was because of sin that Job was suffering. And you know Job? Job's like, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I don't think I've done anything this big that would require this, right? I don't know exactly what I'm apologizing for. And he had this debate with God. But even now, even in the time of Jesus, right, people were thinking that if you really did something bad, these people were, this stuff happened to them, it must have been a consequence of their sin. If you were born blind, if you were born a paraplegic, you must have been consequence of your parents' sin that this happened to you. It had to be a result of sin or this horrible thing wouldn't have transpired. But they go to Jesus and he says, no, but unless you repent, worse things will happen to you in each case. And so I'll give you this. The reason there was a prevailing wisdom is because often bad things do happen in consequence to sin. Is that fair? I mean, we've all done, done, done dumb things and, and experienced the consequence of that. We all hold on to sin and, and, and experience the consequence to that. Sometimes God intervenes in a bigger way to hammer home a point for us. You can most always draw a direct line from the consequence, from the sin, right? Almost always. Otherwise, it doesn't serve as a good deterrent. But what Jesus says is, even when it's not, Use every occurrence, whether it be natural disaster or that of human making, to serve as an encouragement to go to God and repent. God, I'm so sorry. If we get bombed, right, like 9-11, I'm so sorry our country is turning their backs on you. I'm so sorry that we're walking away from you in word and in deed. I'm so sorry of our neglect of the Sabbath. I'm so sorry that we don't reverence you as God. I'm so sorry that we've okayed murder and, and, and adultery and all sorts of things in our country. It should drive us to repent of the things that we should be repenting of anyway. It should drive us to repent and look seriously at ourselves. One of the healthiest things we could possibly do, right, is to achieve that broken and contrite heart before the Lord. How do you do that? You repent. Because again, in that brokenness, I think it's a beautiful illustration that's when the light shines the most. That's when the light gets in and the healing begins. I shared a, a statement in, this, in the morning sermon. I said, when we start to really deal with life, get into life instead of escape life, as so many people do today, it's always a risk. But if we don't deal with life, we remain hardened in that escapism. When we deal with life, we deal with the emotions that come from it. We deal with the hardness, and that's where we deal with God. And God comes in and he begins to deal with real things. When my daughter, my youngest, she, she hates sharing her feelings. She just doesn't like it. It makes her cry. She doesn't like to cry, whatever. So, so she kind of stuffs it in, and I keep telling her, honey, you got to put it out on this imaginary table, right? You've got to get it out of you so that God can start dealing with it. You got to get it out of you so we can start talking about it and you can start healing from it. The longer you hold on to it, the scarier you're going to get, the more frustrated you're going to get, the madder you're going to get, whatever. And that's not a repentant heart. That's one that keeps hardening. So God says we got to repent before him. And that, so whatever the disaster in your life, use it as an occasion to go to God anew 
and say, God, I'm sorry. Even if there's no translation, use this as an opportunity to repent. And that's what Jesus shares here. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the, the, wine, or the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year, and I'll dig around it and put more manure on it. And then if it should not bear fruit next year, well, and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. So the fig tree is often uh, analogous for Jerusalem, the temple. And it's planted in the vineyard of Israel, God's chosen people. So a man had a fig tree and planted in the vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it. Came to Jerusalem, came to the religious elite in that country, to the temple, seeking fruit, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Jesus, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Three years referencing the beginning of John the Baptist's time, repent for the kingdom of God is near, all the way up into this point where Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. Three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down, God says. Why should it use up the ground anymore? And Jesus answers him, sir, let us alone for this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. In other words, until I do everything possible to try to save it and try to produce fruit in it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to give up his life for us. Hoping that people would believe in him. Be rescued by him, saved by his grace. Infused with his power and strength. Being reminded that God is faithful to his promises and that he's got them. Upon his resurrection, people started believing 5,000, right? Or was it 3,000 in one day on Peter's sermon? And then they sent out the people, to, the disciples, the apostles now to go and share with all the people throughout the Mediterranean. And they changed the course of history because Jesus gave up his life and then took it back again. He says if they don't believe at that, if it doesn't turn them around at that, seeing me rise again from the dead then go ahead and cut it down. We know what happened. They didn't turn around. And in AD 70, Rome came in and destroyed them completely, burning the temple. But for all those that did turn to him, they were saved and they were blessed and they were restored. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath and there was this woman who had a a disabling spirit for 18 years and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. An interesting line there is, a disabling spirit for 18 years. Luke was a physician and somehow he could tell the difference between kind of a physical ailment that would call this kind of being bent over or bunched over and a a spiritual spiritual or a disabling spirit that was causing it. But somehow he had the insight Anyway, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, now, by the way, it's on the Sabbath. He's preaching, right? He's right in the middle of the sermon, but he sees this lady coming in, right? She probably heard that he was preaching there. She wanted to hear what he could say. It doesn't say she came for healing. It just said she came to be part of the worship service. When Jesus saw her come in, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. A great sermon illustration, right? Right in the middle of this sermon. Now, just before I get into the next part, he hadn't done anything that broke any of the laws that the Pharisees had set up. 
when you speak something into being, unless you're God, who spoke the world into being, it's really not considered an act of work, right? When you lay your hands on somebody, again, unless you're God, it's not really considered an act of work. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. I don't know how people get so blinded to stuff. But when you have an agenda and all you can see is the agenda, sometimes you can overlook a lot of stuff. Think politics, right? If you're on one side of the aisle, even if the person's trying to make good points or, or they're just a caring person and being nice, it's hard for you to see because of your agenda, okay? I think, at least in the political world, that makes sense. But here in the church, Jesus healed somebody who had been suffering from an affliction for 18 years. Upon receiving the healing, she immediately praises God and gives him the glory. But all this ruler could see was he was disrupting worship. Or maybe it was an opportunity to try to take a shot at Jesus again. Then he says, Hey, come on six days, you know, when we're not having worship and come into the office and we'll heal you then. But, but don't do this anymore on the Sabbath. But then Jesus answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie an ox or donkey from the manger and, and, lead, him in, and, lead, it, and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He got short-sighted, but the people didn't. They saw this miracle. They heard this lady proclaiming God. Nobody could deny what had just happened. God had done a miracle. And they all rejoiced except for the ruler. He was put to shame as a result. Jesus goes through a really hard section here because he's talking to us. He shares very real things. He says we're playing for keeps. Unshackle yourself from the evil one. Pursue me with everything that you've got and know that I will help you every step of the way. I've got you, I love you, you're mine, he says. And because of me, you're forgiven and you're strengthened and you're renewed and you can begin again. There's a new life that I offer to you. Follow me. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And all God's people said, amen. And let me pray. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for today. And I, I guess especially I thank you for mothers. And I thank you for the role that they play in our lives. I thank you for their, I don't know, unending energy in terms of the way they cared for us when we were little. Their unending care, it seems, as they dealt with our ups and downs as we went through life. The way that they taught us, the care that they've shown, the times that they just rooted for us when everybody else didn't for their constant love for us, for being the person in this life that continues to care, it seems more than just about anybody else on the face of this earth. Father, we thank you for the roles that you've given us in our moms, and we honor them today as a precious gift from you. And we pray that tonight, knowing that you hear us, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.